Thanks for coming back tonight. Great to see you. We are continuing on with my random musings from various portions of the Word of God. And uh, they've come to me from uh, different reasons. Some from just as I've been reading devotionally and some thoughts I have. Some are a little more constrained, like tonight. I told you, if you're here on Monday, Thursday, that my favorite service is the Monday, Thursday service. I always look forward to preaching that and love the, the theme and the opportunity to reflect uh, on uh, communion together. There is one service I dread, and that is the Good Friday service. Once it's over, I love it. But the, in the process, I'm always a wreck until the final pastor's here. Because I'm always concerned when somebody's not here yet that for whatever reason, they're going to not make it. And if they don't make it, uh, I feel compelled that then I'm going to have to stand up and say something. Okay. And uh, so I'll, I'll let you know what happens. Okay. Uh, so when somebody hasn't arrived yet and their section is coming up closely, I all of a sudden flip to their portion, read it, and start making some notes, just in case, okay? And uh, fortunately, in all these years, that's never happened, but it's come close, okay? Uh, one year, Pastor Grossman showed up after the hymn, that was real close. Uh, uh, this year, uh, Pastor Dan showed up... Uh, five minutes before the hymn, so that was pretty close, and uh, also uh, this year Jason Hoy was just a little bit close, so I, I was reading over the mockers for Jason Hoy's section, and as I was reading over the mockers, I thought, well, you know, if I have to say something, it's going to be about the thief on the cross, and I was kind of surprised, I appreciated, you know, Jason, and all the men always do a terrific job. But uh, I, I was a bit surprised that he really didn't deal with the, the thief on the cross. And so I thought, well, that's what I'm going to do tonight. I'm going to talk about the thief on the cross. And from a perspective of a deathbed conversion, a deathbed conversion, I'm sure you've heard of that term. If not, it means people that accept Christ uh, immediately before they die, while they're on their deathbed. And the pre supreme example of that, of course, is the thief on the cross. There are many questions that swirl around deathbed conversions. First, is there any such thing as a genuine deathbed conversion? There are a lot of people that would question whether or not it is possible for a person just moments before they die to actually exercise saving faith. Uh, can there be true repentance in that kind of a scenario? So there would be some that would argue against the idea that, that a deathbed conversion is even valid. How could anyone have any confidence that a deathbed conversion is real, is one of the questions. Another is, does talking about deathbed conversions just promote ungodliness by reassuring people that they can live a life of ungodliness and then repent moments before they die? So there are those that would say it's irresponsible to be talking about deathbed conversions because you're just encouraging people to live in sin. You're just encouraging people to have a good time and then right at the last moment, just before they die, and then they're going to offer a prayer and enter into eternity in the arms of the Lord. Uh, so you don't want to do that. You don't want to encourage people in sin. So, so don't talk about deathbed 
conversions. But we know what the Bible says. Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. Okay, we know that's not right, and it's foolish to be thinking about a life of sin is pleasurable and delightful, and you don't want to accept Christ uh, until late in life. Believe me, you want to accept Christ as young as you can, as early as you can. Uh, I've been blessed. I accepted the Lord when I was five years old. I've never regretted, (laughs) never wished that I'd lived a wayward life for 35 years and then get around to accepting the Lord. That's just foolishness. But uh, there is no question that this thief on the cross was truly converted. Jesus himself announced that the thief would be in the presence of Jesus. Luke 23, 43, and he said to him, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. I don't know how one could argue whether or not that thief was truly saved or converted. Uh, Jesus pronounces his destiny for us, and uh, there are no coincidences or haphazard circumstances in the word of God. God has ordained these things from the foundation of the earth. Uh, Therefore, it was important that this account be in the scriptures uh, just to teach us about deathbed conversions, just to teach us the reality of the fact that a person can place their faith in Christ just moments before they die and still be in God's presence. So a deathbed conversion is not due solely to the fact that death is imminent and therefore a person is, quote, naturally, unquote, thinking about death and therefore is converted. So the first fallacy that we want to think about is the idea that everyone is going to think about their entering a Christless eternity just before they die, if they know that they're about to die. Obviously, if you're hit head-on by a car, you don't get that moment to really think about life. But a person with cancer or a person with uh, difficulty is, is going to, quote, naturally uh, turn to Christ. I, I remember vividly uh, one summer, I was at, at Pinebrook, and if you remember the account, there was a uh, Russian sub that was at the bottom of the ocean and they were running out of air and these men were about to die. And I remember having a conversation with a a person at at Pinebrook saying to me, you know, all those men have to come to faith. It'd be impossible to be in that situation and not put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And I'm saying, well, that's not true. That, that, That isn't the answer to people coming to faith. It isn't just that they know that they're about to die. Um, There are many people who, though close to death, continue to reject Christ and enter into a Christless eternity. For example, the second thief on the cross, though in an identical situation to the first thief, dies in an unrepentant state. There are three people on a cross. Christ is in the middle, and there are thieves on either side. One comes to know the Lord, the other doesn't. But the situation of the two thieves are virtually identical as you think about the circumstances. Both are condemned. Both are witnessing the very same events taking place. Both hear the words of Jesus Christ. 
both are about to die, and yet one is converted and one is not. So conversion always requires the grace of God to be at work in the life of an individual in order for faith to be produced. So it isn't just a natural response to knowing that death is imminent that people cry out for God. There are uh, people that die on their deathbed with their fist raised in absolute rebellion uh, towards God. So uh, keep that in mind as we talk about deathbed conversions, which is another reason why it's foolish uh, to put off receiving Christ as Savior if you are coming under conviction because you don't know that that conviction is ever going to come back. Uh, you don't know whether or not uh, you are ever going to feel that way again. So tonight, we're going to consider the characteristics of saving faith <coughs> that were evidenced in the life of the converted thief on the cross. Uh, <coughs> some people doubt a deathbed conversion because they would question whether the elements of true saving faith can be expressed. And one of those elements is repentance. All right, So it was impossible for that thief, if you will, to uh, evidence a transformed life. Uh, we would expect that if that thief were able to come down off the cross, that his lifestyle would have changed. We, we wouldn't anticipate that he would have continued as a robber. Uh, we wouldn't expect that he would continue to be uh, occupying uh, activities outside the law. Uh, we'd expect to see a transformation of, of character. But what I want to demonstrate tonight is that there is true repentance that is demonstrated by this thief, even though he's not able to come down from the cross and uh, walk and uh, demonstrate a transformed life. So number one, he demonstrated true repentance. There was a transformation of life in turning away from sin and turning to God. In the beginning, he, that is this thief, was mocking Jesus just as the others. In Matthew 27, verses 38 and following, it says this, Then two robbers were crucified with him on the right and on the left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, You who destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself if you are the Son of God. Come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. And the robbers, notice plural, who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. So these two thieves start off manifesting the same mockery, the, the same unbelief towards the Lord Jesus Christ. But he, that is the repentant thief, went from participating in sinful behavior to confronting it. The first thief continued in his sinful behavior. Luke 23, 39. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you the Christ? Save yourself and us. But he is saying that in mockery. He, that is the repentant thief, confronted the other thief in his sinful behavior. But the other rebuked him. The other rebuked him. The other 
That is, the repentant thief moves from mocking alongside the first thief to now confronting the thief and telling him, you shouldn't be mocking Jesus. Thirdly, he sought to promote a fear of God's judgment. But the other rebuked him, saying, do you not fear God? Aren't you concerned that you're about to die? Aren't you afraid of judgment? Aren't you afraid of what we are going to face in just a matter of minutes and be in the presence of God? Doesn't that scare you? And four, he sought to bring the unrepentant thief under conviction. Uh, verse 40, since you're under the same sentence of condemnation, meaning the same sentence that he was under. Uh, we're both going to die on this cross. Doesn't it concern you that you're going to stand in the presence of God? So there is repentance. There is a vivid change of behavior and attitude. From mocking to now rebuking. He separates himself from the crowd and the thief when initially he's going along with the crowd and the thief. Number two, he acknowledged his own sinfulness. He states that his own condemnation was just or right, and we indeed justly. So he's not defending himself. He's not saying, I got a bad rap. You know, I didn't deserve this death penalty. I should never be hanging on this cross. I never did anything that was worthy of this kind of treatment. No, he says, we indeed justly. So he is putting himself out there as saying that he's guilty. He deserves to die. So in confronting the other thief, he does not leave himself out when he speaks of wrongdoing. B, he states that what they are experiencing is due to their own sinfulness. Verse 41, we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. Okay, we're, we're just getting what we deserve. We can't complain about the fact that we're about to die. Uh, we brought this upon ourselves. There is real confession. There is an acknowledgement of sinfulness. Three, he asserted the righteousness of Jesus Christ. He asserts Jesus' innocence. Verse 41, we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. So now... He is proclaiming to the other thief that Jesus is innocent of all wrongdoing. He doesn't deserve to die. We do, but he doesn't. So you can see there's a, a drastic change in his understanding of who Jesus is and of what is taking place as the three of them are hanging upon that cross. So he asserts Jesus' innocence. Therefore, by implication, Jesus did not deserve to be condemned or mistreated. Number four, he trusted Jesus, 
who was able to provide him with, with forgiveness. He asked Jesus to forgive him. Now, he doesn't use those exact words, but that certainly is the implication. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. So he is asking Jesus to be merciful to him. He's asking Jesus to look kindly upon him. Uh, remember me when you come into your, your kingdom. Okay, so he's putting his, his faith in Jesus Christ. B, he believed that Jesus was the king that Jesus claimed to be. He, he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Now remember, they were mocking Jesus and saying, if you're a king, come down from that cross and save us. He moves from the place where he is challenging Jesus and mocking Jesus because he says he's a king and hanging on the cross to a place where he says, Jesus, when you come into your kingdom, I want to be a part of it. Okay, there, there is a pretty drastic shift. And fifthly, he received that forgiveness from Jesus. And he said, that is Jesus to him, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. All right. Uh, you will be a part of my kingdom. You will be with me. So as we think about this deathbed conversion, even though it's just a matter of moments, there is the elements that are necessary for salvation. There, there, there is clear repentance here. Okay, There is a clear acknowledgement of his own sinfulness. There is his siding with Jesus Christ and willingness to separate himself from those that do not trust in Jesus Christ. He is looking for Christ for forgiveness. He's not trying to uh, <clears throat> somehow make himself worthy. He just says, Jesus, remember me. And uh, he uh, demonstrates true faith in who Jesus claims to be, uh, that uh, he has a kingdom and that uh, uh, he's going to be uh, entering into that kingdom. And so he received forgiveness from Jesus. So lessons from a deathbed conversion. What, are we, what can we talk, take away from this? What kind of applications can we make? Well, first, there are reasons for sadness in deathbed conversions. There are reasons for sadness in deathbed conversions. Number one, deathbed conversions do not change the wrongs that have been done to others in a life of sin. So, yes, it's wonderful that this man placed faith and trust in Jesus Christ, and he's going to be with God for all eternity, but it doesn't change all the wrongdoing that he did. It doesn't undo the hurt that he brought to others, the inconvenience and perhaps the real heartache that came from all those that he had robbed, all those that he had stolen from. It doesn't change the shame that was brought to his family. Uh, if he had a wife, if he had kids, if he had a brother, if he had a mother, whatever the case may be, but here they are witnessing his death and the shame of it all, the public humiliation, all of that continued, all right? So 
when a person dies, the, the, the heartache that that life of sinfulness that brought to the family, that doesn't change. How much better it would be uh, to not put one's family through such things. Uh, so we, we need to keep that in perspective. Number two, deathbed conversions do not reverse all the pains and consequences that are the result of a life of sin. Uh, now I'm thinking not just about others, but I'm thinking about the individual uh, himself or herself. You see, uh, this deathbed conversion did not mean that he wasn't going to actually die on the cross. Just because he was forgiven didn't mean that now he was going to be set free. Okay, and uh, Jesus could have easily done that. Jesus could easily have set that man free. And uh, by his miraculous powers cause that that man would be coming down off the cross. Or he could have changed the heart of the centurion. There are many different ways in which he could have achieved that end. But the point is he didn't. He, he, he still died. Okay, And as you think about these deathbed conversions, uh, it doesn't mean that person isn't going isn't to die. It doesn't mean that, that their, their physical life changes. Uh, and if they are dying because of their sinfulness. Uh, there are, what is it, something like eight or nine uh, people that are going to be on death row this, this week uh, that, are, uh, that are to be uh, executed. Uh, it's possible for those eight or nine people to put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. But it doesn't mean that then they're going to walk out of that jail cell. <laughs> It doesn't mean that that electric chair isn't going to work or function, or I guess in this instance they're going to use lethal injection, and that's why they're going to do it all this week, because those drugs are supposed to expire. But it doesn't mean that, that they go free. <laughs> so there's, life isn't just hunky-dory, okay? So uh, that needs to be kept in mind. Okay, B, there are reasons for joy in a deathbed conversion. Number one, people can in fact be saved fairly shortly before they die. This should provide us with hope and witnessing to our loved ones. There is this wonderful truth that there is hope for a person until they take their final breath. Once they die, the scripture is clear that it's appointed unto man once to die and then the judgment. Okay, there, there's no second chances after we die. No second chances after we die. But until we have breathed our last breath, there is the remaining hope that this person will come to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, so we shouldn't give up on anybody. If you have a loved one, don't give up on them. Don't think, well, you know, if they haven't accepted Christ by now, they never will. Okay? If you, you think about people that are hard-hearted, well, think about this thief. Okay? He's been through it all. He's been unrepentant. Uh, he is hanging on a cross. He's still mocking and jeering up until the very end, and yet God reaches down in his mercy and grace and changes the heart of that individual and brings forth faith in them. Uh, don't give up. Don't give up on a loved one 
a friend. Uh, continue to witness to them. Continue to pray for them. Continue to encourage them to place their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. For we can have the sincere hope that this person will come to a true, true saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. For we know that by the thief on the cross that that is possible. B, this should provide us with comfort when dying loved ones make professions of faith. What should we think when a person on their deathbed prays to receive Christ as their Savior? What, what should we think about that? Uh, I would submit to you that it should bring us an incredible world of comfort. Knowing that that doesn't always happen. Knowing that many, many people die in an unrepentant state. So that if this person makes a profession of faith, we ought to be delighted. Okay? And our, our hearts ought to be lifted. And we should be comforted. And knowing that dear uncle so-and-so or dear aunt or mom or dad or sister or brother or friend or enemy has professed faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. For God can indeed save such people. Number two, people can have a strong testimony for the Lord even in deathbed conversions. Here is a, a powerful testimony. Okay, we're speaking on it tonight. We're using this as an example of an individual who God wonderfully changed. Uh, it is possible to be a witness. Here is this person on their their deathbed. Here's this thief who's now concerned about this other thief. This thief who now challenges this other thief and says, aren't you worried about your death? Aren't you concerned about your entrance into the presence of God? He moves from a place of mockery to now a true heart of concern for his fellow man and wants to see that person converted. It's a great joy to see people who just moments or days before they die, all of a sudden the Spirit of God opens their hearts and minds and they be concerned for people that are around them, nurses and loved ones and people that, that visit. That, that is fantastic. Use that opportunity to be a witness for the Lord Jesus Christ. My father-in-law, uh, Bonnie's dad, was a believer, uh, but he was extremely quiet about his faith and really didn't challenge the unbelieving children in the family about their relationship to the Lord, and he didn't talk much about his own personal relationship to, to Jesus Christ. He, he was pretty silent about such things. But just a few days before he died, he uh, talked to me and he said, you know, he said, I have never ever 
really stood up for my faith. And he said, I want my children to know before uh, I die that it's extremely important that they place their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. He said, I want to be baptized. He said, will you baptize me? I wanted to get the whole family together. And he said, I want you to baptize me right here in this hospital bed. And I said, well, you know, Dad, I, to me, baptism is immersion. I don't think I, I'd be applying water to you. I, I said, no, I can't do that. But I said, God knows your heart. God knows your desire to be baptized. And I said, we certainly can gather the whole family together. And I said, we can all stand around this bed, and you can tell them that your heart's desire is that if you were possible to get out of this bed, you'd want to be baptized. And you want every one of them to know that you want to be strong for the Lord Jesus Christ, and you're concerned about their salvation. And that's what we did. We gathered the whole family together, and uh, all the uh, children were gathered around the bed, and uh, he gave his testimony. Uh, he expressed the uh, sadness that he had, that he hadn't publicly professed his faith before, but he wanted the, the children to know that, that uh, he was right with God and that he'd be in God's presence when he died, and he was concerned for his children that wouldn't be. That was a powerful night. I remember it like yesterday. You can still have a powerful testimony for the Lord Jesus Christ, even if it comes at the very end of your life. In many respects, it's even more powerful to know a person that has lived their whole life one way, and then God gets a hold of them, and they change dramatically. What an example. What a testimony that is. And so I would say to anybody in this room, you know, uh, if you don't know the Lord as your Savior, please, by all means, accept him tonight. But don't think that you can't have a testimony any longer. And, and maybe there's even somebody in this room that has, has been uh, diagnosed with a, a fatal illness. Uh, don't wait two days before you die. Accept Christ now and have a testimony. Let your loved ones know the futility of having lived a life without Christ and the blessings of knowing him as your Lord and Savior. Uh, a, this can provide meaning to the death of an individual who has not lived for the Lord. Uh, it can turn the saddest situation into the most glorious and wonderful situation. It can transform a room. It can transform a relationship that exists between uh, ourselves and our children or our parents or our loved ones or our friends. Okay? It, it can take on a whole new dynamic as people put their faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And B, this should provide comfort for the one who dies in faith. And then closely related to that, it should provide comfort for those of the loved ones who die in faith. Um, let us 
rejoice that our God is merciful. And salvation is not by works. It's, it's not by how many brownie points we have mastered through the years. We are saved solely through the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And salvation is offered to us as long as there is breath in our bodies, as long as our minds still function, as long as we can still reason. You don't even have to be able to pray audibly. God knows our hearts. He knows our thoughts afar off. You don't even have to be able to form your words anymore and still be able to exercise saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, that should just cause us to thank God for his mercy and his love and his kindness. And let us with boldness and with confidence take the word to dying people and let us implore them to put their saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your word. We, we thank you for this incredible example of the thief on the cross. And we are grateful, O oh God, for the grace and mercy that you have shown to him. And through that grace and mercy shown to him, it teaches us of the grace and mercy that is shown to others. Uh, Lord, we pray for those in our family, those in our extended families, those in our acquaintances that perhaps right now are dying. Oh Lord, uh, help us to take the gospel to those people. Help us not to give up on them. Help us to, to realize that it's possible, even if a person is to die tomorrow, that tonight they can place their, their faith and trust in the Lord Jesus. And oh God, if you are so gracious as to perform that work of salvation, grant us the comfort and the peace and the joy to know that they are with you. Uh, teach us, I pray. Help us to appropriate this portion of Scripture in a meaningful way. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you, and you are dismissed.